1: It was Monday, December 18, 1995, and after months of uncertainty over the future of Rugby League on the Gold Coast, the ARL triumphantly announced a new owner. Chief Executive John Quayle described it as a tremendous relief, as the Seagulls would retain their connection, but the team would be reborn with a new name. That name was the Gladiators, and the new owner was a Gold Coast property developer named Jeff Muller. Quayle's relief would soon prove significantly misplaced. This is Part 2 of Entry of the Gladiators. The 25th chapter in the Rugby League Digest: in-depth investigation of the Super League War. Welcome back to the Rugby League Digest. I'm Michael Adams here with Andrew Paskin. How's it going, Andy?
0: I'm wonderful. How are you?
1: Very excited for part two, the conclusion of this insane uh, Gold Coast saga.
0: <laughs> El Dorado comes to an end.
1: <laughs> so part one of this, as crazy as everything got in that chapter, that is actually the Gold Coast story on rails. Uh, at this point, it's going to go wildly off the rails as we get to know a man named Jeff Muller
0: reputedly a Elvis fan, is (laughs) that (laughs) true?
1: Well, let's start there. So when we ended part one of this chapter, we ended on the point of uh, Muller, up till then an unknown Gold Coast businessman, coming out of nowhere to take the license. So now that He's got the Gold Coast Gladiators, as he's christened them. Let's get to know the man a bit more. And, yeah, the fact that he was an Elvis fan uh, has been referenced in anything ever written about Jeff Muller.
0: Well, before we get into that, I mean, is he not the first bolter to get a licence?
1: That's very true. I think you're right. Um, But what is it about Elvis fans that Elvis becomes such a big part of their personality?
0: Well, I'm a massive Elvis fan. I haven't used to wear the glasses around as a uh, <laughs> awful affectation as an 18-year-old.
1: The puffy shirts, um, I think he had all the me- memorabilia and everything as well, but he was uh, living that dream with Elvis, was Jeff Muller.
0: It kind of fits into that rockabilly streetcars, that type of vibe, doesn't
1: it? Yeah, yeah. And it also kind of shows you where he's coming from in terms of you know him being a, a rich guy. He wasn't the buttoned-up, old-money kind of rich guy. He was the maverick, uh, you know property deals and all the rest of it the type of like who you can imagine being you know super rich one day bankrupt the next and like endlessly going on in these cycles as far as i can tell he's managed to actually you know keep it on a pretty even keel he doesn't seem to have risen too far or fallen too low
0: is there any worse combination than rugby league entrepreneur slash gold coast property developer like put those two together what do you get
1: yeah it's asking for trouble just to set up Jeff Muller, I would love this profile of him written by the great Mike Coleman. Um, this came out in the Courier Mail a few years ago. He said, he owned a 13 hectare waterfront block of land that he called Graceland's. I stood on that <laughs> block with Jeff as he tossed empty stubbies onto the neighbor's property and told me it was on the market for $6 million. And if it sold due to the article I was writing, he'd cut me in for 10% commission.
0: Sorry, why was he tossing the stubbies on the next door? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
1: That went unremarked upon, but to (laughs) me, (laughs) it kind of says a lot about the brashness of him and the fact that he was not a traditional businessman.
0: Well, I'm going to go out on a limb and say there's probably, this is just me speculating, but I'm going to say there was a neighborly dispute over noise, pets, or something of that nature. (laughs) And he's just used their their yard as a a stubby holder.
1: (laughs) And if anyone is listening to this and hasn't heard of Jeff Muller before, well, that kind of tells you something about how his. League administration or ownership career went down. It was very short lived, as we're going to get into over the course of this episode. And I think partly is to do with that brashness and unconventional style. Uh, There were questions as to how liquid he was uh, and how accurately valued his property dealings were. That caused the ARL to step in, as we'll get into in time.
0: Well, presumably they went over his books and the books were okay. You can't help it if you're the ARL and the books are, uh, you know, incorrect type thing. But yeah, it wasn't like 1988 when you know it was the height of the boom. This was like 95, 96, post recession. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's hard to be hoodwinked. I'd say in that era, but
1: yeah, I mean, I think the ARL found out who they were dealing with fairly quickly, and I do actually have a, a lot of blame to apportion the ARL later in this chapter. But in the first instance, I think they came and saw him as the white knight that they needed, and you know, it's a kind of Nathan Tinkler thing where. It seems too good to be true, but if you don't have any other offers coming in, you just you know hope against hope that it's going to work out.
0: What's the correlation between white knights and berating players at uh, training uh, ratio? <laughs>
1: <laughs> but so as we mentioned last week, he was announced as the license holder on the 19th of December uh, and quickly got to work in establishing the team as his own and really trying to get rugby league on the Gold Coast restored to its rightful place. Uh, He sent a message to his players early on. He did that by scheduling a training run for Christmas Day.
0: What a great move to ingratiate yourself with the players.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, in his first week, he was really getting off on the right start. But I do think for all his bluster, there is something genuine about Muller, and I think he really did love rugby league and uh, love the Gold Coast and the combination of the two. Was living out his wildest dreams. Like, I think the way he acted and presented himself, you know, he came out the day after he got the license and said that they were going to win the comp the following year. Like, I think he was just very passionate and excitable. Uh, So, I'm just going to read a quote that I think sums up his outlook on the team and what he wanted to do with it. And this actually came late February. So, just as he was about to be stripped of the license for good, he said, I want to see a team on the Gold Coast, and without me, they don't have one. I love Rugby League. I've been involved with the game all my life and have been associated with teams which have won 20 premierships. I'm not a loser, never have been, and don't intend to be in this case either. But Rugby League has been losing out on the Gold Coast. For eight years, no progress has been made, despite the fact that the ARL tells me $30 million has been ploughed into the Giants and the Seagulls in that time. I saw an opportunity to get involved, someone who has American flair and entrepreneurial skills as well as a love of league, and already we've won the Co's first trophy. I won't fail in this because I'm a businessman who makes money for a living.
0: You've got to admire the passion and the, and the positive outlook. I mean, you don't want your new owner to come out and go, you know what, mate, a bunch of draft horses, you know? Yeah. It's, yeah, so you can't knock him for that.
1: I think that quote also reveals something else about him, that he had a, a very Trumpian kind of countenance. <laughs> I actually put that to Mike Eden in my interview with him. I said he seemed a bit Trumpian. And he was quite uh, on the same page. He said, yeah, for sure. A little bit delusional about his self-importance. I didn't hang around him much.
0: (laughs) He seems like the kind of guy that was like reading the self-help books a bit late from the 80s. And he was a bit early for the internet entrepreneur, fake it to you, make it type, Gary V type. Yeah. He was sort of in between both uh, things where for that uh, to actually work, which has worked in the 2010s.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, Totally. But as we set up the unique character of that place last week, I think he's a very fitting figurehead of the Gold Coast. It kind of works that they'd have someone like him running the place. And I think it's worth noting that for whatever else it did, Muller's arrival was a signal that the future of the franchise was going to be the Gold Coast. So the provincial Tweed Heads outlook was finished.
0: I think the Gold Coast brand is essential. Like the Tweed Heads, it just feels watered down to me.
1: mm yeah, and of course, they had removed the Tweed from the name once they once the Seagulls took over, but they were still playing at Tweed They were still reliant on the league's club. So it was still very much an in-between kind of venture until the Gladiators came in and severed those ties completely. And so this is probably Muller's greatest legacy. I mean, it was something that was probably always going to happen, but it took him coming in to make sure of it. And so part of that was to make the move that had been talked about for a long time basically as long as the team had been in existence and that was to actually make the move away from Seagulls Stadium to Carrara Oval and this is another knock on the Seagulls so when Don Ferner came in as football manager in 1993 he undertook moves to get them out of Seagulls Stadium and over the border to Carrara but Seagulls dug in and refused to move
0: yeah crazy That's not like Carrara Oval is like the brand new Parramatta Stadium, is it?
1: Exactly. So Michael Searle, the former Titans managing director, actually called it the Carrara Black Hole in talking about the need to move (laughs) away from it. And it's basically been a cursed venue from the start. So, you know, the first team to take up residence there were the Brisbane Bears in the mid-'80s.
0: Well, I'd like to uh, stick up for Carrara Oval at this point and say, all the teams that they had there, <laughs> <I don't laughs> to, you can play in the Opal.
1: Yeah, true. But, I mean, in a rugby league context, the fact that it can host an AFL team means it's not suitable as a rugby league ground. So...
0: 100%. Watching ants.
1: You know, it's rectangular or nothing, in my opinion. But again, a rocky start to professional sports at Carrara with their first big backer, Christopher Scase, spending over a million dollars redeveloping it before fleeing to Mallorca, leaving a, a flurry of liquidators in his wake trying to recoup some money. Part of that was to remove the floodlights that had been installed. But after a few attempts to do it, they realized that it was actually going to be more expensive to pull them down. So they ended up just leaving them there.
0: I mean, is he the whitest of all white knights, Chris Gates? <laughs> Jeez.
1: So by the early 90s, there was already being talked about a curse of Carrara. You know, that was in, in many ways due to the poor performance of the Brisbane Bears, who eventually moved to the Gabba. But it was the right move to get to the Gold Coast and move away from Seagull Stadium.
0: As was pointed out in our last chapter, who in their right mind would travel 100 <laughs> miles towards the- <laughs>
1: But that is probably the most positive thing we can say about Muller at this stage, and and that is certainly as far as the ARL would have gone at the time. So basically, by early January, it was clear that something was up, and they were starting to have a serious regret about who they'd handed the license to. So there were fears about his liquidity and his ability to fund and run the football team. There were also those alarm bells ringing about the scheduling training sessions on Christmas Day. Uh, A news clip went viral for the time of him blowing up at the players at training, and just the general outlandish things he was coming out and saying made the ARL a bit nervous about what was going on.
0: Well, I've got to say, what were they thinking? I mean, if you meet this bloke, and he's singing Viva Las Vegas, right, and carrying on the way he carries on, surely alarm bells ring at that first meeting, and then... The dozen meetings after that, where they signed a deal.
1: (laughs) Especially because mere days before that, they'd been dealing with Brian Ray and Kerry Packer, who were favoured to get the licence. Like, surely they would have seen a noticeable difference between the way that the two groups carried themselves.
0: (laughs) Brian Ray didn't have a guitar around his uh, neck. And so in January
1: 1996, John Quayle went to Paul Broughton, who, you know, worked for the New South Wales Rugby League. And in his book, Broughton says that Quayle said to him, the Gold Coast Gladiators, as Mr Muller has named them, are either in financial trouble or lack the organisation skills necessary to meet the players' needs. Uh, And then goes on to say that Quayle asked Broughton to go up there and, you know, help out with the situation and try to smooth the waters. And on top of their worries about his ability to effectively run the team, he very quickly fell out of favour with the playing group and there became a lot of unrest between the players and
0: Muller. I mean rugby league people are used to you know shitty management, let's just say it. What must he have been doing to get offside so quickly with these blokes?
1: Yeah. Well, a big part of it was money. So when Muller came in, there was confusion over how valid the contracts the players had were, uh, and whether a new venture meant that, you know, it was a chance to start afresh and, you know, not honor contracts previously signed. So basically by early January, players were threatening to boycott training and they were on strike basically. So Scott Wilson said, it's like anything, if you don't get paid, you don't show up for work. We believe by taking this down, the club will have to do something or they won't have the players.
0: But once the players are 100% in the right.
1: They're absolutely in the right in terms of the way contracts work and all the rest of it. He's 100, 1000% in the wrong. But this was Muller's response in the Sydney Morning Herald on the 11th of January saying that you know there was no guarantee that he was going to re-sign all the players that were currently at the club. They're going to have to play against young kids, and I'm not going to sign them unless they prove they're better. I'm not going to sign washed-up players. That's what the old Gold Coast did. If any player thinks I'm going to come up and kiss his shoes and tell him what a good player he is, he has another thing coming. See, like, the thing <laughs> is like... He's kind of right. Like The Gold Coast had developed this reputation as a transit lounge, the last stop for players who were halfway out of the league, who hadn't performed in seven years. So I can understand him coming in as a fan of the Gold Coast who wanted to see them doing well, to say, no, this is a new day. I only want the best. I want players who are actually going to perform. But obviously, you can't just not pay people.
0: Well, I can see what he's trying to do. He's trying to start a culture, right? You know, yeah. A winning culture. But you need to be able to lead with substance to do that.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but he did try to, you know, use a carrot and stick approach. And part of his strategy was to show the players that he was determined to make things work on the Gold Coast. And if they gave themselves to him, he'd be right there behind them and would motivate them to success. And apparently it was reported at the time that at one training session, he gathered the players and said, I'm prepared to lose $2 million of my own money this year alone just to get a Gold Coast team on the field, uh, to which one of the players apparently said, then you must have shit for brains.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God, it's the best call ever. Is there a more rugby league retort than that?
1: (laughs) It hasn't really been established how much, if any, of his own money he actually put back into the club So we've mentioned the cash flow problems and the concerns the league were having. So I don't know how much of that was just kind of empty bluster. But what it did was to immediately put him and the players at odds and create a very volatile working environment. And then he did himself no favours by adopting the same stance with the coaching staff. So John Harvey was the incumbent Gold Coast coach. The first thing Muller did was to bring Graham Eady in to be the head coach but then des bolster who you remember as the seagulls chief executive at this point he was still around as the chief executive of the gladiators he gave back the word to graham edie that oh actually john harvey's back in the picture so edie was out harvey was back in then hardy was gone again at this stage phil Economides came in and was announced that he was going to be coaching the team that was a promotion for him who'd been coaching the reserve grade team to replace Economides, Muller brought in Eric Groth because he was a, a massive Eric Groth fan, apparently.
0: I'd trust Eric Groth to do a good cover of Brown Eyed like Girl, but he's your head coach.
1: <laughs> well, as it turns out, no one got the chance to find out because Groth only lasted a couple of weeks before quitting. He was quoted as saying, This place is a joke. They couldn't organise an under 15 side out of here.
0: <laughs> Probably the most accurate comment ever. <laughs>
1: and this was seen as a true betrayal by Muller for whom Growth had been an idol so much of an idol in fact that Muller had a framed photo of Growth hung up in his house so when Growth quit Muller allegedly drove around to Growth's Gold Coast house trampled on the photo and dumped it on the lawn <laughs> outside
0: is this a throwback to season 1's portrait wars in the league's club <laughs> <laughs>
1: So it was all falling apart really quickly. So in the midst of this, Des Bolster did actually resign as CEO, and then a week later, the Seagulls actually pulled out of the license, which I think is an underrated aspect of this whole saga. So as far as we've been able to tell, the Brian Ray group pulled out or weren't considered because of the threat of legal action over the ownership of the football club license, which belonged to the Seagulls. So the Ray group's out because the Seagulls weren't willing to let go of the football license. Muller comes in because he'd come in with the money and enable them to retain the license. Within a month of that, the situation gets so toxic that the Seagulls just decide to pull out regardless.
0: They cost us the Ray group.
1: It just makes you think, surely like an agreement could have been achieved if they'd really tried harder. Or just take them to court. You've already got about 15 court cases running at the same time. What's <laughs> one more? You know? batch them, yeah. <laughs> so the Seagulls officially withdrew from the license on the 23rd of January. Around this time, the ARL demanded that a proper administrative structure be put in. Uh, and Muller was to put some distance between him and the playing group. So a CEO had to come in to act as a go-between. And so at this point, this is when Mike Eden is introduced to the story. So Muller had got Mike Eden, who was a lawyer on the Gold Coast. He got him to come in and, and draw up the papers and do all the kind of legal work that had to be done in the first place.
0: Well, theoretically, it's a brilliant appointment. A football guy, also a lawyer, you know, common sense, et cetera. On paper, it sounds perfect.
1: Yeah, exactly. And I think that's why he approached Eden in the first place about you know being his solicitor for the license was because he knew that he was going to be passionate about football As Mike said, I wouldn't be billing in six-minute units at $38 a unit like most lawyers. Mm. So I think that's how they made the initial connection and so it was kind of a logical appointment uh, in Muller's eyes to get Mike Eden to come in. So that was at least one thing worked out. But the troubles weren't to end there with lawyers acting for the TV show Gladiators coming in writing and claiming rights to the name, which forced a name change.
0: (laughs) I mean... We've mentioned Man-O-Man in this series. We've mentioned The Gladiators. <laughs> what next? Step-by-step step with Patrick Duffy. Yeah.
1: <laughs> uh, three massive shows of the era. But, like, Gladiators was massive. I loved it because I was a, a Mark McGaw fan. I always got bagged out for my family for his nickname, of Sparkles. <laughs> so, Hammer, as he became known in, in Gladiators, that was a, a lot more manly and acceptable. So, I liked that. Of course, Vulcan became a pop culture sensation for a time there. So as it happens, Muller decided to fold on that one and agreed to change the name, which an interesting parallel with the next instalment of a Gold Coast franchise a a decade or so later with um, the famous video of Laurie Lawrence spruicking the name The Dolphins only for Radcliffe to come in and stop them from using that name, (laughs) hence the birth of the Titans.
0: They should be called the Gold Coast Injunctions.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, and in both cases, it was the name that had to be removed was replaced by the name of an existing NFL franchise. So basically, as soon as Muller was removed from the picture, Paul Broughton established a heads of agreement with the San Diego Chargers, and thus the Chargers were born. But that comes a bit later in our story.
0: What in the world would San Diego Chargers want to do with the Gold Coast ARL franchise? <laughs>
1: <laughs> this is how you really know things were heading south. Jupiter's Casino, who had planned to sponsor the Gladiators, pulled out of the deal due to changes in the company's financial position. Like, if you're on the Gold Coast and you can't get Jupiter's, you're in trouble.
0: (laughs) It'd be like being an NBL team, that couldn't get Hungry Jacks.
1: (laughs) So, with that last disaster narrowly averted and the name to be changed, we head into February, and at the start of February... Was the World Sevens. And this probably Muller's lasting impact on rugby league, his performance at the World Sevens.
0: Can you show some respect? It's the Coca Cola World Sevens, excuse me.
1: <laughs> but I think we do need to discuss the Sevens and this year's installment of it in particular at this point, because uh, there's some very relevant Super League ramifications to how this, the World Sevens played out this year. The first of it was the fact that it wasn't to include any Super League teams. So remember at this point in time, early February 1996, it's before the judgment had been handed down. So at this point, both parties were, well, the Super League more than the ARL, but there was the public perception that there would be two competitions and the ARL would not have uh, Super League teams participating in it. Uh, And so it went with the Sevens. So... In a way, if that was how it was going to be in 1996 with split competitions, it was a nice soft launch for the ARL because like Sevens is Mickey Mouse football anyway. So it's kind of immune to accusations of being Mickey Mouse.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was double Mickey Mouse in this installment.
1: Well, the funny thing is like crowds were down, but it was like acceptable. It wasn't like, you know, people turned away in droves. Like Mm. I think the the weekend was down 15,000 on the previous years. But, you know, they still had 37,000 over the two days, you know. So, it was, it was respectable. Mm. But um, left little lasting cultural impact. So, Sherlock in the Rugby League Week said that it came and went like a summer zephyr, belly stirring the air.
0: Great imagery.
1: But I'm wondering if maybe the concept or the tournament was coming to the end of its usefulness regardless of the war. Yeah, I agree. That's what I put down in my notes. And then reading over them today, I had a second thought, which was, is it just that we were aging out of the concept? So I remember in the early 90s, I was super invested in the sevens, but I don't really remember anything about watching any old sevens from, I don't know, like 93, 94 on. It was just like, but, no, but I- you know, you watch it a couple of times and you just kind of move on.
0: I was excited every year for it, just like fast food and, and terrible uh, comedy or whatever, you know, it's just a fast food thing that, that's enticing to look at. And when you eat it, you feel sick.
1: Yeah, yeah. But so, of course, as with every sevens tournament, the real fun of it and the buzz you can generate isn't really in the ARL teams you get, but it's in the exotic teams, the international teams, and and whatever else you can cobble together that really has the
0: appeal. But it doesn't matter like how bad the teams are even really because everyone's got a chance in sevens to do something. So the ARL was on a um, a good wicket with this uh, soft launch.
1: Yeah, exactly. So on top of the 12 ARL teams, you had a team from Melbourne, which was the first time a Melbourne team had been included, which was good and fun. But funny because there was a lot of talk at the time about, you know, introducing a Melbourne team in the sevens was, you know, the ARL's way of preparing for an eventual like Melbourne team in the competition. Which I consider just laughable. It's the sevens. It's meaningless.
0: And how many Melbourne players were there, like, from Melbourne? (laughs) Yeah.
1: (laughs) Along with Melbourne, you had New South Wales country. You had uh, an Aboriginal team, Tonga, Great Britain, um, which, of course, was, you know, just an ARL Great Britain team. You know, players like Lee Jackson, who were playing in the ARL at the time. Uh, You had Canada, American Samoa, Fiji, Japan, USA, and the Port Moresby Vipers. So, of course, PNG... Was signed with Super League, but the Port Moresby Rugby League uh, had broken away and and they were with the (laughs) ARL.
0: Can you believe it? Even in Papua New Guinea, there was a split. I mean, for God's sakes.
1: But it's funny because this was an example of a really shrewd move by the ARL, not just entering the Vipers into the Sevens, but also to establish them in the Queensland Cup at this point. Because at a time when they lost so much internationally, this was like borderline visionary. Like, so... Port Moresby was where all the power in Papua New Guinea Rugby League was. So even though Super League had Papua New Guinea, in Port Moresby, you had some of the best players. You had the only venue in the country that had international playing facilities. So it's not clear cut to just say Papua New Guinea went to Super League when such a big part of Papua New Guinea Rugby League, you know, stayed loyal to the ARL.
0: Well, this happened in the Pacific countries as well, right? And Japan even. So, I mean, yeah, there was yeah. the power base versus the official body. It was two different things.
1: Exactly. And the Sevens actually really highlighted what a mess the international scene was becoming. So, with the Fiji team, you had Noah Andruku, who, of course, was signed with Super League, telling the Fiji players not to sign with Super League to stay with the <laughs> ARL because there'd be better opportunity for them.
0: I mean, wouldn't you be loving that if you were John Rebo's, like you signed this guy up? Yeah. Um, I mean, it's before his uh, front page with the 38 schooners and the four bottles of wine whatever it was. <laughs> but um, rock solid Noah. Thanks, mate.
1: Yeah, exactly. So you're seeing these splits everywhere. And then you had Japan who, uh, as Steve Mascord wrote in the Sydney Morning Herald, are represented by the breakaway East Japan Rugby League. <laughs> because Japan proper had signed with Super League.
0: The renowned powerhouse, East Japan. So this is the funny thing. The only person in the world that would know the quality of the Japanese players would be Steve (laughs) Massa. And then you
1: had, you know, players from very specific islands playing in the tournament. You had Graham Carden of the New Zealand Rugby League threatening life bans to any New Zealand-based players who played in the tournament, which, I mean, it's one thing if it's, you know, like the top players in the game, like, you know, if Laurie Daly decided he wanted to turn out for New South Wales country, I can see that being a major issue for Super League. But, I mean, these are like Pacific Islanders playing part-time in local competitions, being threatened with live bands. You know, it's very Union-esque.
0: Oh, yeah, it is.
1: And I think what it highlighted was the fact that the international situation was going to be a problem. And, I mean, if Australian domestic scene couldn't sustain two competitions, the international game definitely couldn't. Mm. but so moving on to the Gold Coast aspect of it all I should note that Newcastle won the tournament so uh, congrats to Newcastle there so the Gold Coast won the plate final which was the first Gold Coast uh, championship whatever you want to call it of any kind in rugby league Uh, it was widely reported as the first you know Gold Coast franchise to ever win anything I did find that the Gold Coast baseball team had won a couple of Premierships earlier in the 90s So I don't know how professional they were But there is that So the plate final So there were 8 groups of 3 teams in each group uh, The plate final were the teams Who finished 3rd of 3 In each of those groups So in fact uh, as it turned out It was the consolation final For teams who had failed To win a game over the course of the tournament Right
0: <laughs> Not exactly the prestigious uh
1: no, so Gold Coast managed to win that. We'll get to that victory because uh, there's a lot to say about the victory.
0: So the ARLs based it off a um, Melbourne Cup sweepstakes format, where <laughs> first, second, and third, and last gets a prize. Yeah, exactly.
1: <laughs> so the sevens was to be the first real hit out for this new Gold Coast team, a chance, uh, you know, to show the world that you know it wasn't the seagulls anymore. It wasn't the Giants. It was a new era. We mentioned all the, all the problems with players, and by this point. Half the players had left, and it was a real effort to try to draw together enough players to play in the tournament. So, the squad they turned up with, uh, I'm just going to read them by name. Yeah, Damien Driscoll, Des Clark, Ben Sankey, Brendan Hurst, Paul Ladder, Todd Miller, Dave Watson, Chris Orr, Cameron Apo, uh, David Bailden. What can you tell me about those players?
0: I recognise a few of the names. I remember Dave Woods being a good player.
1: Uh, he was, but he wasn't in the team. It was Dave Watson.
0: Oh, sorry. There you go.
1: But he was a New Zealand international who, you know, went on to have a great year with them. He was the standout in that squad.
0: Yeah, no wonder they were in the plate final.
1: And so Dave Watson had only just arrived with the team. So he just signed and basically the day before the sevens, he turned up to meet his new teammates and go to the tournament. The other thing they had to do was sort out the uniform. Uh, And this was actually designed by Jeff Muller's wife, Lynn, who was a, a... Boyle reports a very forceful presence in her own right and a key part of the Muller ownership team. And so the design they went with had the, the teal look of the time. It, it was actually not too far apart from what the Chargers eventually went with. So, you know, Lynn Muller did some good work there. I think Jeff might be overstating it a bit when he talks about the reaction in the crowd. He said. When we walked onto that stadium, the crowd went berserk with the colours. It was fantastic. <laughs> Something different. The colours, the design.
0: <laughs> berserk. Um, <laughs> I quite like that Chargers jersey, to be honest. Um, but, as we know, the teal jersey is Carrara-esque in its curseness in rugby league. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, definitely. And so, yes, they failed to win a-, a game during the group stages, but they did go on and win that plate final Which I'm sure is one of the great days in Jeff Muller's life. So he got on stage, uh, was all but patting his wife on stage, (laughs) fists in the air. He took the mic and said, we had to get out there and prove that we're competitive. You ain't seen nothing yet. This is a vindication of my wife and I after all the pain and anguish we've gone through over the past few weeks. It's a perfect, perfect end to a marvellous, marvellous weekend. And showing that he wasn't all just tough talking, he decided to go all out. So teams at the Sevens traditionally gave half of the prize money to the players. Jeff Muller announced stuff that he was going to give every last cent of it to his players. So uh, $6,000 to be <laughs> distributed to the, the 10 members of the squad.
0: <laughs> Better than a kick up the ass, I suppose. But uh, how amateurish <laughs> is the ARL? So what, the first prize was 80000 for Newcastle, right? Yeah. These numbers, I mean, even if they had, like, the crowds were down, they still would have made a fair bit of money from it the weekend. TV rights, but it's, decent it, crowds, $86,000 going away. <laughs>
1: <laughs> there was the trophy, the cup, and the plate. So there were three tiers of prize money to be distributed. And I know it's like, as you said, the sweepstake, you get your dollar back, you know, for coming last. But just, like, don't have the plate final add an extra $6,000 onto the winner and just make the whole thing look less embarrassing.
0: No, no, just have $100,000, 50000 and 25000 or something like that, so yeah. it doesn't look like a chalk raffle. <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> and to this day, Jeff remains very proud of his achievements in that Sevens tournament on his website, which we'll be discussing a bit later, uh, and I quote, In 1995, Jeff motivated his new team to win a major World Sevens trophy the first and only Gold Coast team in any sport to win a world championship trophy ever. (laughs) Oh, brilliant. But sadly, this was about as good as it was going to get for Jeff Muller at the Gold Coast. So Mike Eden, who, by the way, had to fly himself down to the Sevens tournament because uh, they weren't going to shell out the money it would have cost to fly him down.
0: I mean, how much would that have been? The equivalent of, what, $200 now? $300, $300, yeah. like, for,
1: for your CEO. Yeah. So Eden's time at the club was rapidly coming to an end, less than a week after he'd arrived there. Um, they had to put a team together for a trial match against Brisbane Wests. They didn't have jerseys, so John Sattler loaned them some jerseys from the Southport Sharks uh, and Mike Eden actually bought shorts for them all to wear <laughs> out of his own pocket.
0: Fair income.
1: I did ask him about that and he said that he would have been reimbursed for the shots at some stage. So, you know, it's all above board. But
0: Well, it's not really above board because a professional football team should have uniforms.
1: (laughs) (laughs) It seems like a minimum requirement, but, you know, we're dealing with a very different beast here. So it all came to a head shortly after the sevens. So uh, as Mike Eden told me, we had a board meeting at the round table and the ARL people came up. And it was basically hijacked by Muller's wife. And that was when I just said, no, listen, we can't have this. I'm here to run the football club. Uh, and he went on to say that the ARL said, look, just tell her that she doesn't have a say and tell him that they don't have a say in these parts of the license and the club as it was. And this is where it gets interesting what Mike told me. So he said that the way it was going, the ARL at this point knew that action needed to be taken and that like, this couldn't go on. Muller couldn't hang on to the license. So one of the reasons uh, Mike Eden was brought in was that Muller was to have no direct dealings with the players. Everything had to go through him. Uh, the players demanded a code of conduct be drawn up for Muller.
0: <laughs> for the owner, the code of conduct for the owner, <laughs> not the, for the players. That's actually such forward thinking from the players. This is like mid-90s rugby league players and they're thinking about code of conducts.
1: Yeah, like basically from the start, they like the players seem to handle this whole situation really well, either by just bailing instantly or by, you know, getting together and making demands and, you know, all but going on strike. And, you know, they achieved it. They got the CEO to come in, they got the ARL to come in and take control. So they, they basically got their way. Yeah. But this is where it gets interesting. So this is when Mike Eden resigns. And I just, like, reading everything from the time, I just assumed that it became, like, an unworkable situation. He could see that it was a basket case and just wanted out. But he actually told me that Paul Broughton and Ken Arthurson, and he said uh, maybe David Barnhill as well, um, came up and said, look, and this is a direct quote, by the way, just for the good of the game, can you resign and come back and see us in six months and we'll appoint you as the CEO of the new franchise and you'll go down in history Paul Broughton's exact words were, you'll go down in history as the architect and founding father and all of that sort of stuff. So Mike Eden, you know, did just that. And then a few months later, rang them back and found that, you know, the ARL people, Paul Broughton was quite entrenched in the position and decided that, you know, he was going to stay. So, you know, thanks for your time, Mike, but we're going in another direction.
0: <laughs> There's that renowned ARL loyalty.
1: So Mike said that he was pretty, uh, as he says, bitter and twisted about that. With the reason. Yeah. And you wonder if, like, they ever really did have designs on bringing him back or it was just, you know, he was a Mueller hire, not an ARL hire. And so it was easier for them to just move him out of the way. And
0: You can't blame Mike Eaton for Jeff Mueller.
1: No, yeah, no, no, exactly. <laughs> exactly. And so this was all that the ARL needed to make their move. So basically, without a CEO, they could, you know, hold a motion of no confidence vote, which they duly did. And at that point revoked the license um, from Muller.
0: how many months did he last? uh
1: let's see the nineteenth of December, and this was the fourteenth of February, so a little under two months. God <laughs> <Good> um, Lord <laughs> so it didn't end there because what Muller did was to apply for an injunction saying that you know they didn't have the right to strip his license, so it wouldn't all be resolved there and then, basically from this point there was a little holding pattern going on where the ARL had revoked the licence but they couldn't act on that. So Muller was still there and was still technically in charge.
0: What was the ARL legal bill like in this time? I would love to see the
1: like, like It is staggering how many different court actions they were caught up in at the same time. So on the one hand, I don't blame them for being wary of getting involved in any more court action, but it just seems whatever they did was bound for the courts anyway So they might as well have just gone with what they thought was the best outcome for the club and for themselves. Yeah. So once this was all out in the open, there was a lot of talk of what would happen to the Gold Coast franchise, who was going to come in. And there was a lot of talk that the Brian Ray group were going to come back in uh, and take over the license. This was suggested in the Sydney Morning Herald. And I mean, surely with the Seagulls now out of the way, that would have been the smart move. So I can only assume that the Brian Ray group were no longer interested and why would they be?
0: Well, I mean, it's just, they must have saw what was happening there and thought there's no way anyone could bring this out of this hole.
1: Yeah. And so player agent Sam Ayoub uh, in the press at this time said, it's a shambles. I've never come across anything so unprofessional in all my life. And it's hard to argue with that.
0: <laughs> when a rugby league player agent saying that, <laughs> imagine that the unprofessionalism they've seen in their times.
1: Like, this is just a terrible look for the ARL. And at any other time in history, this would be embarrassing for them. But I just think with everything going on with Superleg, like, it just kind of got buried. It didn't get anywhere near the air it would have got in any other circumstance.
0: Well, also because it's the Gold Coast. If it was Parramatta, it would be over the front page. But everyone expects the Gold Coast to be awful. And, yeah. You know, so they're awful yeah. again. Yep, that's about right.
1: <laughs> but anyway... It was going to end up in the courts now, which, you know, I'll just say the ARO should have taken their chances on the Seagulls case and avoided this mess. But this was the mess they were in. But as I said, before that, we were in this holding pattern where Muller still had the license and he was making moves. So part of what he was trying to do was to get the team together, get a squad that could compete and get his dream targets in and really make the team his own. He was hampered by the fact that he was... Under the constraints of a one point two million dollar imposed salary cap by the ARL. You have to remember this is in a non salary cap era where Parramatta's wage bill for nineteen ninety six was going to be five times that at six million dollars. Even with a salary cap, it was always hard to get players to go to the Gold Coast. And that was before it all went to shit. Well, actually, I mean, in nineteen eighty eight it all went to shit, but before it got (laughs) before things got this bad. But let me
0: ask you this. How can you expect success when that's the disparity between clubs
1: yeah and then on top of that the players he was signing he couldn't actually formally sign them because of this licensing squabble <laughs> with the arl so he was signing players who weren't having their contracts recognized by the arl which would lead to some problems down the track but he did himself no favors with the type of players he was bringing in so uh, his famous quote um which came earlier this was in january he said I want blokes like Martin Beller and Ellery Hanley, not washed-up (laughs) has-beens.
0: I want guys that debuted in 1977.
1: (laughs) Uh, He brought Phil Daly in, who I think was managing a Queensland pub at the time. Uh, Phil last played uh, first-grade football in 1991. (laughs) Tried to sign Ron Gibbs because apparently Ron Gibbs and Gold Coast hadn't caused enough drama together over the years. (laughs) And then, you know, the likes of Troy McCarthy, he tried to get Scott Fulton to come up from Manly, couldn't get that over the line. It was all starting to get difficult. And at this point, he had to change the team name. He thought, well, we had the Aboriginal team in the, the Sevens. How about this could solve the player signings at the same time? He suggested that they be an Aboriginal team, which, I mean, I you know, I don't think it would have worked. But Okay, well, all right, I like where he's coming from. Uh, the name of the team, the Gold Coast Natives.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you reckon that would have went over or?
1: Oh, my God. It's, all his comments about it are even worse. So um, he was said that the ARL wasn't keen on a franchise having a racial bias, to which he said, I'll be as biased as I want. It's my team. We would have white players, but we're all natives. I'm a native Australian. We'd have native islanders. Dave Watson's a native New Zealander.
0: I mean, yeah.
1: Uh, And then the big selling point, once we get tied up with one of these Aboriginal groups, you'd reckon the mining companies would be pretty keen on sponsoring us to get on side with them, wouldn't (laughs) you?
0: Maybe we're all um, the uh, out-of-touch ones, and this was visionary thinking. We could have all this mining money in the game by now.
1: But just what an absolute train wreck. And it just keeps getting worse. Maybe the single best thing he did, though, was the coaching situation, which was to actually get Phil Economides in. And Economides did quit for a time in mid-February, at which point Mal Cochran was brought in to coach. Um, so that was announced on February 16. By February twenty second, uh, Phil was back in the mix and Mal stayed in Sydney.
0: He must have the gift of the gab because, I mean, Jim Jones-style gift of the gab because everyone just keeps agreeing to these faux contracts and agreements and everything. Yeah. He must be able to sell.
1: Like, how did he pull the wool over the ARL's eyes in December and then, you know, all these players, all these coaches, like, kept coming up to him? So, you're right. He definitely had something.
0: I was surprised to learn about the economy his background. I mean, all we know about is the great run with the draft horses, you know, so... I've never really delved into how he came about, and the fact that Jeff Muller was responsible is amazing.
1: Yeah. Like, he was already in the Gold Coast setup; Like, he'd coached their reserve-grade team, took them to a major semi-final the year before. So he was on the radar at the Gold Coast, but it still took someone promoting him, you know, and that happened to be Jeff Muller. So um, you've got to give him kudos there. But uh, come February twenty eighth, it was over for good. So the ARL won the court action, Broughton took over as CEO. Tom Bello became chairman, and Muller was out.
0: What happened to all the players that he uh, tried to sign?
1: Yeah, so some were retained. Someone like Phil Daly was told, oh, sorry, the, the contract you signed wasn't actually valid because Muller didn't have the right to sign players when he signed you. So, sorry, Phil, I hope you didn't give you notice at the, you know, kind of Muller Hotel, but we don't need your services here. So you got to feel for those players. Jeff Carr actually said that he sympathised with Daly, but... He told Daly that Muller had been advised not to sign any players. Uh, and Muller was clearly like upset about everything that had happened. Uh, and he came out after the announcement and said, The day we won the Sevens, they were pouring champagne down my throat, patting me on the back, and telling me I was the best <laughs> thing that had happened to the Gold Coast in eight years. <laughs> Which, like, at this point, I actually sympathize with Jeff Muller. I very highly doubt the veracity of that story.
0: Are you like me and feeling a bit of like, you know, you're sort of rooting for him a bit?
1: I've got some really strong thoughts on this, which I want to save for the conclusion. So let's move on to to what happened next. So as I said, the Chargers name was established almost immediately. The new management structure were brought in. Interestingly, they kept a very similar jersey to what Lynn Muller had designed.
0: Well, why wouldn't you? If the crowd went berserk when you ran out with it, (laughs) you you would keep it.
1: And then it was about getting the team finalized uh, and the coach installed. So Paul Broughton in his book takes a lot of the credit for hiring Economides. But really what he did was just ratified Muller's decision. Mm. So I do like absolutely give Jeff Muller some credit here. But I love Phil Economides' quotes at the time because he really outlines the blueprint for what the Gold Coast was able to achieve in the next couple of years and what they may have been able to s- sustain if they were given some additional support. So, on being announced as the coach, he said, What I'd like is a couple of years of stability here. If we were able to keep together the nucleus of a side for two seasons, build up some teamwork and team harmony, and bring through some of the terrific young kids we have, I know we can make tremendous gains both on and off the field. I just believe so strongly in this area as a rugby league stronghold that I feel honoured to be able to kick off what I anticipate will be the most exciting period we've ever seen down here.
0: What a great comment.
1: Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, it's exactly what he did, and we're not going to, going to 1997 in this episode. But, like, from the start, he outlined what he thought the side could achieve and delivered. And, I mean, they were up against it from the start. So Martin Bella said that they'd had six full training sessions in the six weeks that he'd been there.
0: Bloody hell.
1: And reports were that training was a shambles. There were never enough balls to go around. There weren't any, like, you know, (laughs) tackling guards and all that sort of stuff. Just wasn't a part of it.
0: (laughs) How is this possible in '96? Yeah, I know. All Super League had to do was have an undercover camera at Gold Coast training and just go look.
1: <laughs> yeah, again, like, and this this just shows you like how much the story was buried because this was like such perfect ammunition for Super League, and it seems they didn't really run with it to any serious extent.
0: Well, no one cared. I mean, the Gold Coast was an afterthought.
1: Yeah, exactly. And so, getting the team together. I mentioned that disparity in the wage budget between the Gold Coast and Parramatta. Interestingly, in our Filthy Four episode, I mentioned that Parramatta's round one team in 1995 had only two players in the corresponding match in 1996. The same was true of the Gold Coast squad. So, winger David Bailden and back row Brendan Hurst were the only players who were in the 17 for round one 1995 and round one 1996. Wow. The difference being that Parramatta stacked their 96 team with representative players, whereas Gold Coast went from one squad of nobodies and has-beens to a new, completely different squad of nobodies and has-beens. And I mean that in the most respectful way I can phrase it.
0: Parramatta have attempted to buy so many comms and come up empty.
1: (laughs) Yeah. and Dave Watson who we mentioned New Zealand International had some you know troubled off field issues over the year and including a sh- short stint in an English jail uh, had been from club to club and you know <laughs> uh, had some issues but became like an inspirational leader for the Gold Coast and you know was clearly like the heart of their team and had a great year and so they had this on field resurgence early in 1996 They ended up finishing the year with five wins and a draw. Four of those wins came in the the first 10 games of the year before they, you know, had some really significant injuries, which when you've got such a bare bones squad, you can't really cope with six of your top players being taken out of the team. So they faded late, but I mean, it was like a monumental achievement of a season. And one of those victories was actually against that Parramatta team, which says a lot.
0: Beautiful. But there has to be a, a Radbilly Digest episode on Economides at some point.
1: Yeah, I mean, we'll definitely get to it when we get to 1997. But I remember, I, it might even have been, I, I can't even remember if it was in a Super League chapter or just a just a random discussion we had. But you were saying that, you know, you were shocked when you learned that the great Gold Coast season with Con- Economides was in 1997 in in the half a comp year. And yeah. it kind of like diminished the achievement. but. Yeah. When you realize where they started from, yeah. Like it, it's not diminished at all. Like no, it's it isn't. unbelievable what he managed to do.
0: In the very most respectful way, is, is a great rugby footnote like everybody perks up when you hear that name.
1: Yeah, exactly. But the paradox of what was happening in 1996 was that all their successors were just advertising their decent players to other clubs. So <laughs> every other club knew that they were operating under this ARL imposed $1.2 million salary cap. They had no ability to compete with any serious offers. And so as the season went along, you had Dave Watson signed with Canterbury, Shane Kenwood signed with the Dragons, Lee Ryan, who was there, they all went to the Warriors. And basically the team was just being poached at the same time that Paul Broughton was being the old school gentleman saying, well, I'm not going to go after players who are under contract and rah, 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 trying to be gentlemanly about it. <laughs> when meanwhile, the rest of the league was just picking the squad
0: apart. I mean, all the accusations of bias against the ARL over the years, right? You know, they favor this and they favor that. They're literally saying, it's a boxing match. You can have one arm and one leg and yeah. compete competing against Mike Tyson in his prime.
1: Yeah, exactly. And so at this time, there were suggestions that the ARL should do more to support the Gold Coast. To which Ken Arthurson came out and said, what do we do? Give them, say, a $4 million cash injection to keep the players? I suppose we could do that, but then we'd be exacerbating the very problem from which the game is now reeling. The players, officials and staff at the Gold Coast should all take your bow for what they have achieved this year. But apart from locking the players in handcuffs, I believe there's little the ARL can do to have them stay.
0: He's right, but I mean, it's your competition that caused this.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it's your competition that caused this. They went and guaranteed the Gold Coast's future for the next two years. So when that was in jeopardy, they said, well, you're sweet till at least the end of 1998. You've imposed this salary cap. You've brought in your guys to run the joint. Like, I mean, we're on the record about clubs and handouts, but this was the ARL's own doing. Like, they needed a better response.
0: Yeah, but again, uh, you'd end if you do, you'd end if you don't.
1: (laughs) Yeah, but I mean, in this situation, like, it's... A mess the ARL are 100% responsible for. Yeah. Like, if I was a Gold Coast fan, I would be absolutely furious with how this all went down.
0: Well, why don't we ring him up and ask him?
1: (laughs) (laughs) And so that's basically where we leave the Gold Coast. And as I said, we will touch on their 1997 season at a future time. Uh, I wanted to look at the aftermath of Jeff Muller.
0: So fascinating.
1: So it's been a a, you know a checkered post football life for Muller. He came to woes in the US in the early 21st century with a company called Save the World Incorporated. So they were floated on the stock market, and their big thing was a zero emission fuel saver. So it was going to revolutionise the car industry, and you know he had the support of Jack Brabham. Oh no, Jeff Brabham, sorry. Uh, Pro Hart apparently was also supportive of the project.
0: Well, if it's one thing that Wall Street respects, it's pro-heart's input.
1: <laughs> well, see, this is where it all went south for Jeff. So it's one thing to say, look, this is really legit. I've got Jeff Brabham and I've got uh, pro Hart.
0: <laughs> pro, do you have an MBA in business? No, no, I, um, I pour spaghetti on carpets.
1: <laughs> so that, that would have been all sweet. Where he went wrong was to then say, oh, yeah, and also Ford. I've got Ford. So this caused the stock to, you know rapidly increase. Trading of shares was then suspended when Ford came out and said, no, we're actually not attached to this at all.
0: (laughs) Now, I'm not a business genius. Actually, my finances are very muller esque at the moment. But uh, (laughs) Would this attract the wrath of the uh, Australian Securities Commission by any chance?
1: (laughs) Uh, It attracted the wrath of a few securities commissions and uh, ended up losing a civil court case in the U.S., relating to Save the World Incorporated and the the Zero Emissions Fuel Saver. I like his quote about it. He said, I lost millions. All my banks came down on my property deals. The bad publicity attached to the Gold Coast license had people thinking I'd done something wrong. It cost me nearly everything I had. If I was a weaker person, blokes have slit their wrists for less things than I went through. (laughs) It's a uh, pretty brutal quote, but I love the fact that he thinks it was the bad publicity about the Gold Coast license yeah, yeah. that, that caused. Cost- guys
0: in Michigan, uh, head of forwards, <laughs> going, well, you know, do you hear what he did at Sevens?
1: <laughs> but when I said at the start that he managed to retain, you know, like he didn't fall too far, like he did, you know, retain ownership of that huge waterfront Palm Beach property. Uh, Until in 2012, he decided to launch a run for Gold Coast mayor and was selling the home to fund the campaign. That story petered out, so I don't think he got very far in in his campaign. Um, And about this same time, he also turned his attention to his next great venture. So he tried his hand at rugby league, didn't go according to plan, but he still had the passion. So what was next? It was to start his very own sport. Uh, which was called the Ultimate Football Organisation or UFO.
0: From the outset, right, we're going we're to go through this in detail and it blew both our heads off, right, the concept. But I'm going to come out in favour of him here. A, look at the success of the Big Bash League, just garbage um, cricket version, right? If this wasn't so outlandish, the, the idea had merit. I'm going to say that.
1: Yeah, and, I mean, that's how it was pitched. It was pitched as 2020 for football.
0: Even the name's, like, great, American-style name, UFO, you know. Like So yeah. I think the idea, uh, before you get into the details, is actually good.
1: <laughs> well, let's get into the details then. <laughs> All right, we've got a link to the website and uh, the theme song, um, which we can't do justice to either just by talking about them. You have to see it for yourself.
0: You introduced this to me via the YouTube uh, theme song clip, right? Which was yeah. launched in 2010, according to YouTube. It was uploaded then. Picture like early 90s video production with like a almost like a Come On you Come On style song, but like bluesier.
1: <laughs> yeah. One of the videos he's got on his YouTube channel, he's actually playing guitar. And I'm wondering if he sang that himself.
0: Well, the voices aren't that great. Um, So I'm thinking maybe The guitar is quite excellent
1: But yeah I mean it's top notch guitar work Vocals a bit how you're going But yeah we will link to this song Uh, The website Like this is Like the most absolutely Bonkers deranged thing I have ever seen (laughs) Like you know If you say early 90s video production This is like mid to late 90s Era internet
0: Angelfire.com
1: yeah very angel fire you've got the like the spinning little moving animations yeah. uh, of the time all caps like it's basically all caps um different fonts different colors um <laughs> insane design and then i was reading through this and then I, it was talking about taking games to las vegas with an asterisk once the travel ban ends i read that and i'm like wait like they're referencing coronavirus like this is actually like and then it actually says at the bottom it's got the website 2008 to 2020. So this is a current website. Um we will link to it. It is crazy and the content is even more insane. So uh, along with the rules of UFO which we'll get to, he lists all the backers and all the coaches and all all the talent he has assembled for this venture and it really is uh some top-notch Australian sporting talent. So uh the likes of Robbie o. Davis. Trevor Hendy, John Hoppawade, Brett Kenney all signed up and part of the UFO pitch.
0: But is this uh, signed up like Forbes was signed up? Or
1: <laughs> Well, there's at least video evidence of Robbie O'Davis. Uh, and I think Brett Kenny's legit or was at some point. So he did have actual people committed to the venture. But then there's other people where he's just put a picture of them with no explanation of if or how they were actually involved in UFO, there's a picture of Jeff with Pat Rafter, uh, (laughs) just with the caption, Jeff with champion tennis player and footy fan Pat Rafter, no explanation of his title or his involvement.
0: I would love it if Trevor Hendy is involved in a a real way.
1: There's a picture of Jeff Muller playing guitar with Steven Seagal uh, (laughs) with the inference that they wrote the UFO theme song together.
0: Well- Steven Seagal, I've got to say, is the ultimate, like that's the sort of guy I would expect to be involved, to be honest.
1: <laughs> yeah, like it actually wouldn't shock me.
0: Like if Bert's involved in this, I mean, who's doing marketing slash maintenance at <laughs> <laughs>
1: Uh There's a photo of Jeff with the wife of Gene Simmons, a reality TV show star, Shannon Boyd. Again, no explanation of her involvement with the UFO. Uh, and then later on in the website, he just goes to list surnames. So some of them you'll know. So you've got Kappa, Hendy, Growth, uh, and then just surnames with no pictures and no first names. So Taylor, Williamson, Smith, Morrison, Cook, Fitzgerald, Alexander, Wilson, so, um, you know, fill in the first names there, but you can see that there's some really A-grade celebrity talent involved there.
0: Well, let's get to the actual hybrid game, because you and I are hybrid game uh, enthusiasts.
1: No, 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 you are a hybrid game
0: enthusiast. <laughs> <laughs> well, sorry, um, we're a hybrid game discussion enthusiast. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. I fall for it every year. It's going it's to happen this year. <laughs> Just like seven's are going to be good, the hybrid game's going to get off the ground, and um, every year you tell me it won't.
1: So the it's basically bringing the best of all the different football codes. So you've got NFL style forward passing, plus you know there's lineouts and throw-ins and all the rest of it. I love that in the theme song it shows the different football codes. It says you know rugby league, rugby union, Aussie rules, NFL, and then it just goes soccer (laughs) throw-ins. So I think throw-ins are the only things actually coming from soccer. But then it's the best of the rest, basically.
0: I would love to see it played, seriously, to see how it rolls.
1: One of the videos on the YouTube channel appears to show UFO being played, but upon further inspection, I think it's just a Gold Coast 7s rugby tournament. (laughs) So no real clear idea of the rules in detail. I think that's a work in progress. But he's big on the big picture, and that is how you're going to sell this game to the world. So one innovation... He's particularly proud of. He mentions it about 30 times over the course of uh, the website. Uh, And this is uh, all copyright protected, patented, all the rest of it. uh, The revolutionary VVIS system, uh, which stands for viewer voting in sport. So basically this gives the audience the opportunity to vote players out of the game.
0: See, this is actually, I mean, have a look at America. You can't tell me that wouldn't go over in America.
1: So the way the concept will work, uh, and this is verbatim from the website, using 1-900 numbers, you can either vote for your favorite player to stay or vote against a player to go. Our TV show co-host is called ET. He will tell the player to phone home to tell his family he's on his way home. This will generate massive revenue for UFO from the 1-900 calls. <laughs>
0: Well, apart from the obvious issues with um, Steven Spielberg's uh, intellectual property, <laughs> that's actually a money-making genius idea.
1: <laughs> Going along with that was a TV show uh, called So You Think You're a Footballer, which like, pretty much um, they did that. I'm pretty sure there was a Fox League show a few years ago along those same lines. So,
0: And I bet you Pounds the Peanuts Jeff wasn't happy about it. <laughs> no. <laughs> like, to me, after you introduced me to this sport... I went down a rabbit hole on YouTube and watched all the... I saw him give a, a local league team a rev up for, about how to win a game. <laughs> he just visualised it, he said. Yeah. But then I saw an interview with him with a journo and the passion of the guy, like, you he, he can't help but like him. No, I just think he needs yeah. someone to harness the energy, you know?
1: Yeah, I agree. It's funny, after all of this, like, I can't help coming to the conclusion that, like, his heart was in the right place. Mm. Like, when you think of the... The Gladiators, you know, he just really wanted his own football team and, you know, he had strong ideas about the players he wanted and, you know, he wanted to rev the team up himself, you know. Ended badly. Save the world, you know, the zero emissions fuel saver. Like, it's all there in the name. Like, it, it's a great idea if it worked. Yeah. You know, the UFO, like, bringing the best of every football code, you know, and having it at this major international event. Like, I think he's just a bloke whose ideas are a bit bigger than his abilities and, like, I mean... That's true of all of us, right?
0: I see a lot of myself in Jeff Bauer, so that's why I'm, <laughs> I'm, really, um, I'm really for him. But I like a character. I like an eccentric. You know, I hate boring people, so yeah. mean, that's one thing he's got going for him. He's an individual.
1: I actually put that to Mike Eden as well. I said, you know, like, I feel like his heart was in the right place. And, and he said, yeah, definitely. His heart was in the right place. You know, He loved being at the game. You know, He did counter it by saying, I think his motivation might, may have been a bit skewed. It might have been all about him. But a lot of us are like that, you know. He's not Robinson Crusoe.
0: But hide in the right place or not, you've got to have the wallet in the right place to pay your players. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
1: like yeah, you have to take these comments with a grain of salt. My crime was just wanting to keep a team on the Gold Coast. Well, it's like no, your crime was not paying your players and you know not being able to run the club effectively. <laughs> But I love the way he's still passionate about football. He's passionate about the Gold Coast, you know. Um, This was in a 2010 Sydney Morning Herald article. This was, you know, when the Titans went on that run to the preliminary final. He said, I'm their number one supporter. I believe the Gold Coast is the Gold Coast. I don't care what they call the team. There'll always be a team I brought to the Gold Coast. It would be the biggest thrill of all time to see them make the grand final. There'll be no ifs, buts or maybes if they made it. I'm due to go overseas, but if they made the grand final, I'd cancel it. I'd be taking the whole family down. My only real prayer is that because we're a Queensland team now, I hope every single Queenslander gets behind them. Please support them. Come on, give it a go and get behind them. That's awesome. Yeah. And it, it kind of takes us back to the start with this idea of the Gold Coast. And whether you see a team in the Gold Coast as the answer or as an Eldorado, like his comments on it as a region and the rationale for a team there, like they're basically on point.
0: I still maintain... There can be no more retreat. Just keep plowing forward with whatever happens in the future from now on. Yeah. Titans have had a good start. There can be no more retreat. If they retreat again, it's finished. And I mean,
1: like, as we're recording this, they've had a, you know, they seem to be on the, the improve on field. But more importantly, I think, like, there's an actual identity forming there. I think they've got the public behind them. Like, they're becoming that kind of everyone's second team. Like, they're almost getting that
0: status. I wouldn't go that far yet, but they're getting there. Look, I mean, I, I like to see them win.
1: I think there's more goodwill for the Gold Coast now than there probably has been, you know, outside of that 1997 run. I think they're getting there. Um, so I, I hope there's not a, another Jeff Muller in the Gold Coast Titans future. But I, I'm also strangely really rooting for Jeff Muller.
0: Yeah, me too. Let's hope this zero emissions thing takes off. And-
1: <laughs> I really didn't think when I started this research that this is where I would end up on it all but like (laughs) i kind of (laughs) feel i kind of feel it. it's a positive feel-good story somehow and as i always say as we end it uh I would love to hear from some Gold Coast fans, short term, long term. You know, Gold Coast residents are Paul Max 78. I'm looking at you. I'd love to hear your thoughts in particular. Chris Gary. Any other Gold Coast listeners would love to hear what you have to say about this chapter because honestly, it's been my favorite one to research to date.
0: Yeah, well, it's been such a good uh, thing to learn about, Mesa. Thanks very much
1: yeah Uh, and so that's our episode for this week so uh, we will be back with the next chapter soon Um, so thank you for listening and we will speak to you then
0: Viva Las Vegas